My name is Gene, and I too am an alcoholic. Boy, is this day off to bad start, you know? I come from a little town called Calistoga, which is of no significance to any of you, but it's in the northern part of our state, 80 miles north of uh, San Francisco, in a little place called the Napa Valley. And here I've been spending three days trying to be polite, nice, and act like a gentleman down here amongst you fine people, and i got to be greeted with that kind of snotty crap. And you see the dirty look this jerk gives me when he mentions, and this is our spiritual meeting. And as I got out of the elevator this morning in that thing that they call the hotel, some people were standing in front of me, and I heard them, and they were talking, this guy said to his wife, who's the spiritual speaker this morning? And she said, Gene Duffy. He said, Christ. He says, that's like asking Linda Lovelace to a pancake supper. You know, I define myself as an alcoholic as I interpret the definition of the word alcoholic. As it's written in the third chapter of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes it's amazing how many people in Alcoholics Anonymous don't really know what in the hell they're saying when they stand up and raise their hands and say, My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. Three days later, you find them reading some kind of weird book, getting a plane ticket to go to Monterey to sit around bear and touch each other, trying to find their identity. And you ask them, you know, you say, Hey, you said you're an alcoholic, don't you know what that is? And, and truthfully, you know, uh, and I certainly don't say this to... Uh, to offend anybody here, yes, I do. <laughs> it would amaze you how many different definitions people in AA have of the word alcoholic. If we was to pass out pencils and paper here this morning and then return them back up here to Dick, uh, he'd have to divide them into about 18 different piles because we'd get all sorts of different definitions. Whereas, if you've had to taken time to read the book and have gotten that far, in the third chapter of that book, incidentally, you know, not written by Ernest Hemingway or James Michener or Rod Serling, you know, written by men and women just like you and I. And it's in that chapter that they tell us exactly what we are. Do you recall that passage where it says that we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking? That's what we are. Makes no reference to anything else. Doesn't ask us how long we've been drinking, what we've been drinking, where we've been drinking, who we've been sleeping with, and what kind of clothes we wore at age three. It demands a little bit further in that same chapter, you know, uh, that, that thing that is demanded absolutely in the fifth chapter, that rigorous honesty, where it, where it describes, a, you know, what kind of honesty we're talking about. A lot of people get it mixed up with selling cars that don't have clutches in it. That isn't what it was all about. It, it says right there in the book that we conceded to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. And it reminds us that that concession is only the first step towards our recovery. That just being an alcoholic is not enough. Just being a guy who comes in here and sits at a meeting is not enough. You don't come to AA, you join AA. See, join means to connect to, be part of. To come just means to sit there and take up a little space. Now, many times, you know, we are approached, all of us, by new people, uh, I talked to a guy just here yesterday morning, you know, who, who's in a hurry to become an old-timer. And he, he wanted to know what the most important part of our program was. 
And let me tell you how I work with newcomers so you'll understand the great opportunity that I laid at this kid's feet. <laughs> a guy once described me, you know, best that he was uh, recalling a little, uh, like Clancy always says, a hallmark scene in one of them little country towns in Wisconsin. He said that he was standing in the village square of this town in a bright, sunny autumn day as it is today, and the leaves were falling to the ground, and the little bandstand was right there in the village square, and the, the briskness of the wind just sort of whistled through every now and then, and little swallows went by, and it's one of them beautiful little days when all of a sudden coming down one of the side streets, unfortunately, was a blind man being led by a seeing-eyed dog. And this stranger stood there in sort of a curious amazement, watching the, the seeing-eyed dog lead the blind man into the square. And he marveled how, how dedicated the dog was to the well-being of that man, because he'd nudge him when it was time to step down off the curb, and he'd give him another signal it was time to step up. He'd hold him back when the light was red, and he'd lead him on when the light was green. And he just stood there in total amazement watching this, this display of dedication as they traversed the entire square in safety, coming finally to rest alongside of this guy who was taking it all in. And he was just about to say something to the blind man when all of a sudden the dog lifted up his hind leg and he peed all over the blind man. He was totally aghast at this. But before he had a chance to say anything, the blind man did nothing more than reach into his pocket, get a few bits of candy, and he offered them to the dog. Well, of course, the guy couldn't hold it back. He said, my God, blind man, don't you realize what that dog just did to you? And he said, yes, he peed on my leg. And he said, then what are you giving him candy for? He said, I'm trying to find his mouth so I can kick his ass. Now that's as about as close as I can get to spirituality this morning. But you know, if we really were to search, to search ourselves and to search our program, to try to display some significant part of our program, which perhaps might carry some higher degree of importance of another, it would have to be, in my opinion, those two facts of the three pertinent facts, which are read in that portion of the fifth chapter of most meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. The closest thing to a guarantee that our program offers, in my opinion, where it says that we believe that no human power could relieve our alcoholism. I have to interpret that to mean that Bill Wilson couldn't do it for me, Dr. Bob couldn't do it, my sponsor couldn't do it, and all of those people all over who were willing to reach out and help me, couldn't do it. And if you don't wonder who's going to do it, you need not go any further than the next of the three facts, because a definite statement is made. Probably the most definite statement in the book. God could and would if he was sought. Now, the way I read that, there's no halfway about that. You know, often you hear people, unfortunately, displaying their total and complete ignorance of the writings of the book Alcoholics Anonymous by uttering some asinine cliches, such as, there are no musts in this program. You probably don't have any of them jerks down here. 
But we're lousy with them up in San Francisco. I assure you, and I know most of you would be in accord, I've taken the time, because it'll be obvious to you that I'm not too swift with education, I've taken the time when any time a word gets into my vocabulary that's more than two syllables, I have to do a little exploration, you know. And so I went through the book very patiently, and I have come up with 57 times that the word must is used. M-U-S-T. Not you had better, or if you choose, or when you're ready. You must, it says. Now, due to the complexity of the English language, though, you have to be a little bit open-minded. Many of the words in our language have multiple definitions. And it's strange and ironic, and I know some of you are going to check me out after this. But the word must has three totally different definitions. One I really should have known, because I live in, in the wine valley, the wine country, the Napa Valley. And uh, must is how you define the juice of the unfermented grape. In other words, the first juice out of the grape in the first crush is referred to as the must of the grape. Now, that's straight dope. But you know, there's another definition. Must is also how you describe the male elephant when it is in sexual heat. It is in a state of must. But you know, I have been around this program for quite a long time. And I have never been able to bring myself to any point of belief that about 45 years ago, the men and women who were writing this book had any great concerns about the sexual problems of elephants. <laughs> I sure as hell am no perfect example. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I came here at age 24 and stayed drunk till I was 30. I went to more meetings the first six years than I had the last 25. So meetings weren't the answer. I changed sponsors weekly. Always taking on the current's big name, of course. Stayed drunk doing that. Hung around all them losers, them guys with that good advice. Work the program the best way it suits you. Few drinks before the meeting, few after. That suited me fine, you know. As a result of that, I was promised in the third chapter of the book that if I persist in any kind of an illusion like that, that eventually there would come a time in my life where I would experience what is delicately referred to as pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. It was a disguised message. It was a message that was telling me and people like me that if I participate in these countless vain attempts, that eventually the day would come when alcohol would not only be the most important thing in my life, it would be my life. And I, like so many, so many, could not believe that and could not accept that. There's a word in the book Alcoholics Anonymous called dilemma. And because, again, I repeat of my lack of education, you know, I have to search for the meanings of words. And, and dilemma is a fascinating-sounding word, you know. It's got a little danger to it, you know. And I asked the schoolteacher guy that was in our home group one night in the parking lot after the meeting. I said, Earl... What the hell does dilemma mean? And he told it to me in that intellectual way them giants do. Went right over my head. I said, tell it to me in some way that I can understand. You see, my problem was when I went to school, I majored in mugging one and baseball cards. 
I went to school in the Lower East Side of New York City, which is not Disneyland. <laughs> nice schools like out here in California have beautiful names. I saw one just the other day, Henry Longfellow High. My high school didn't even have a name. Had a number. If it had a name, it would have been something like Lucky Luciano High. Al Capone Prep, you know. President of the senior class was a guy by the name of Vito. That ought to tell you something. Else. So with all this difficulty, you know, things came rather slow to me. But finally, I was to reach this dilemma. Because Earl explained it to me in very simple language. He said, Duff, a dilemma is when you have opposite answers for the same question. But both answers are valid. I thought he was going into male menopause. <laughs> Early senility or something. And I just sort of gave up on him and walked out of the lot. Sometime later, I was to be involved in the, the taking of another personal inventory. And it was during that inventory that I came to the full realization of my own personal dilemma. And perhaps of the dilemma that every alcoholic, male or female, reaches. I don't know where it was for you. I don't know, of course, when it was for you. I'm quite sure for me, it came at a time after I had lived as sort of an animal on Chicago's Skid Row, West Madison Street, for 17 months. A time in which I became hopeless, worthless, and useless. That time when alcohol became my life. When I believed that I'd die if I didn't get a drink. Surely I'm not the only person in this room today who in his or her past at some time or other hasn't grasped his head and said, Jesus Christ, give me a drink before I die. And that day came in my life. And if that day has come in your life, then you, like I, became willing to do anything. Not to drink, but to keep from dying. The things that you and I do to keep from dying are referred to in the foreword of the first edition of the book Alcoholics Anonymous as the accounts of our experiences. Those are the times when we'll cheat to drink. We'll lie to drink, we'll hurt to drink, we'll cripple, maim, and prostitute to drink. Because we don't want to die. And as I went through that turmoil, what I thought was frantically searching for this thing called sobriety, I continued to fail, slip, and slide, and nothing seemed to work. And I sat one day in an alley, Behind a cocktail lounge <laughs> called Big Rothschilds. And I sat there that morning, convinced that this was to be the last day on earth for me. I didn't want to die, but I didn't know how I could live. I only wanted a drink. And I had stumbled into Rothschilds with some kind of money gotten in some kind of way. And I went through that same scenic routine that so many of us have been through in the past. Alcoholics are not dumb, and we're not stupid. Insane, yes, but not stupid. And I can remember now how vividly I can recall it as I say it. I'm at that stage that some of you know now. They're giving me the drink in the paper cup now. And it's four ounces of cheap wine in a seven-ounce cup. It's costing about 15 cents. And it's my life. 
And I'm half slobbering and I'm half blubbering and I'm crying like hell. And I know I'm going to die if I don't get that drink in me. And I'm looking at that damn glass in front of me. Smart enough to know that if I keep drinking this stuff, it's going to kill me. And yet in the back of my head, something's saying, but if you don't drink it, you're going to die. And that's opposite answers for the same question. That is the dilemma that the alcoholic faces. If I drink it, I die. And if I don't drink it, I die. And I believe it's at that time that I and people like me had to reach out to this power. This power greater than myself. I had never had any trouble with the identification of the word God. I had been taught about a God by my mother and by the nuns in a parochial school. What I could never understand and could never accept until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous was that this God could exert power. That there was a power. I always thought God was sort of a thing for kids. And what I'm about to say right now, I assure you, is not meant to be blasphemous and in no way to ridicule, mock, or make fun of. I'm bound, as you are, by a moral obligation in this program to be totally honest. So I have to tell you how I understood it. And how it was with me. I said I knew God as a child. I can remember being taken to Mass every weekday morning. 8 a.m. prior to going to school. Up in the front row with the nuns in the second row. Hit me with the sticks. Put the cards away. Put the cards <laughs> And I'm a seven-year-old kid learning little verses that rhyme out of a book called The Catechism. And I'm learning how to say them as fast as I can, not even knowing what in the hell they meant. And I'm kneeling there in a little church that I'm not too sure is even a church. And I'm looking at a lot of things that people are praying to and talking to, and to me they're nothing but statues. And they're inanimate. They're not alive, and yet everybody is talking to them, and I thought that was strange, strange. And I'd sit there in that church... Looking at everything, except, I suppose, what I was supposed to be doing. There was a fascinating thing about this particular church. It was a church called Our Lady of Victory in Mount Vernon, New York. Right in the heart of what is referred to as Little Italy. You see, my life was off to a bad start. When you have a name like Duffy and you live in Little Italy, things is tough. But I used to be totally fascinated every morning at the Italian women who are probably, and I don't say this to be cute, who are probably the greatest and most dedicated mourners to walk the face of this earth. At least they used to be. Man, they got that black on right away, you know. And I'd watch them come down that side aisle all hunched over and big beads. And, and they hang out in that corner over there. And they'd cry and they'd mumble and they'd talk. And, uh, and they'd light a candle. And I'd be watching them, looking at the baseball cards. and <laughs> Then they'd get up to leave. And when they left, they'd come and they'd walk out of the church up through the center aisle. And I'd be there in the front. And one thing that always stuck in my mind, for reasons perhaps known today only to God, I did notice that they always looked better when they were coming up than when they were going in. And I never knew why. When it came time for me to take this inventory to search for this power, my sponsor had sat me down. Because I was denying the existence, of course, of this power. God is for kids. How can God handle a thing this big, you know? 
What does he know about white pork, you know? And my sponsor suggested that I search back into my past. If I was to be so egotistical and self-centered that I needed evidence and proof of the existence of this power, he said, search in your past because it has been displayed. I thought about that for a while. And then I began to recall coincidences in my life. One of them took place at about age eight. My older brother, Jackie, uh, in those days, it's not a big deal anymore because of the introduction of antibiotics. Uh, my older brother, Jack, uh, became afflicted with double pneumonia and streptococcus. And we were uh, on what they called relief in those days, welfare today. Uh, uh, things were rather tough, and it was uh, in the middle of an era known as the Great Depression. You young people uh, won't remember that. You'll know all about it in about a month. <laughs> So there was never any room at the hospital for my brother, and the, the city or the county had put up a hospital bed in our parlor, and a county nurse and a county doctor would drop by a couple of times a week, I guess, and administer to my brother. And on this particular night, I can remember listening through the door as a little kid would, the doctor was talking to my mother, and I heard him tell my mother that my brother was about to die, and that chances were he would die before the night was out, and she should make some kind of arrangements, and certainly if he didn't die that evening, uh, he'd be dead before the doctor could return again. Uh, I'd like to be corny and Jack Armstrong type and say I cried, uh, but I didn't. You know, it, death was a new thing in my young life, and I didn't quite realize the finality of it, I guess, because I just went on off to bed, and if I had been thinking about anything, it was probably... Uh, Wondering if I'd get my brother's baseball glove after he died. And Mama got me up in the morning and sent me off to school. And on the way to school, I did something that I did just about every morning I went to school. I stole a few pennies off of the newsstand, you know, so I could buy some candy. Candy's important in an eight-year-old kid's life. And, and that was one of my tricks. And I'd take the five pennies or the six pennies and for candy, and then I go up to the church and say, I was sorry I did it, and I won't do it anymore, but I'm going to buy the candy. And I went into school that day. Went to Mass, saw the Italian women, saw the statues and all of that. And 3.15, I got out of school, and I was walking down to the corner, standing right there in front of the church, holding my books, waiting for Mr. Schaefer, the cop, to let me across the street, when, bang, it hit me like a brick. My brother might be dead. That when I get home, there won't be any brother. It's quite possible that my brother's in the ground already. And I came as close to going into a panic, I guess, as I could. And I was full of fear and full of sadness, full of sorrow, and all of the things that come down on a little kid. And I didn't know what to do. And I remembered the Italian women. And I remembered the five pennies I had in my pocket. And I put my books in the vestibule and I walked into that church. And I didn't go down where I always sat in the morning. Went down where the Italian women walked down there. I'd never been over there in that corner of the church. I remember getting over there and I see all these candle things there. Statues. It's an offering, ten cents. I only had a nickel. Must have been a little bit of an alcoholic con in me then. Because I figured, you know, as a kid I ought to get it for a nickel. So I put the five pennies in, and I lit about 14 candles. And I don't know what I said. I don't know who I talked to. I know what I didn't do. I know I didn't recite all the little things that rhymed in that little book. No, hell, everybody did that. I talked to somebody, and I can only assume then it was the childlike faith that I had in the God. And I didn't talk out of books. I talked out of my heart and out of my gut. But I didn't talk about me. I talked about my brother. And I got up and I left. And my brother just went back to New York two weeks ago. He comes out here and visits me every summer. 
I wouldn't be that egotistical to believe that my brother is alive because I lit 14 candles for a nickel. I'm quite sure my mother and my aunts, who would be her sisters, prayed with a lot more frequency and a lot more dedication and sincerity than I did. So I just wrote that off as a coincidence until I began taking that inventory a little bit more. And then, hey, it was the eighth grade. It was time to go up into the high school, same Catholic school. Now, I don't know how many of you are Irish Roman Catholics in here, but Irish Roman Catholics are a little sick when it comes to educational values. You know, they sort of figure that eight years of a parochial school education is equivalent to a master's degree at Southern Methodist. And it's inconceivable for a kid in a Catholic school environment to be too dumb to go on into the public school system. But the nuns figured different in my case because they held me back. They don't do that, I guess, anymore. Now, the notice that I was to be held in the eighth grade again was a very traumatic experience to me. Because I had to take that report card home to my father. I can remember what I was thinking about. I was wondering how how young you had to be to sign up for the Foreign Legion. If there was a bus to China. And does it hurt when you drown? Anything except facing my father. And I was full of fear and it was the last day of school and I had to do that thing that we all had to do, empty the locker. Remember how you had to empty the locker in the last day? Take home all them goodies, one extra sneaker, torn gym shorts, half-finished bookshelf from the workshop, busted notebooks, all of that good stuff, you know. And I got two arms full of that crap, and I'm trying to get on the trolley car. Now, my mother had given me a nickel to get on this trolley car. And as I got down to the corner to let Mr. Schaefer let me get across the street again, I'm standing right there in front of that church. And I'm thinking about facing my old man. Then I thought of the Italian women. I went in and I went down that aisle. I went up there and I put another nickel in there, lit another 13 candles, and I talked to somebody else in there, I think. And I come out of there and I went down there and I got on the trolley, told the guy I lost my money, and he let me on. There wasn't a seat on the trolley, except one. And there's a big guy in it, a guy about 24 years old. Had a gray suit on, I'll never forget it. Great big monster of a guy. So I went down and I sat alongside of him with my feet sort out in the aisle, holding all my crap. Nice the trolley trundled along. Pretty soon he turned to me and he said, Getting out of school for the summer? I said, Yeah. And he said, I'll bet you you're happy. And then the dam broke. Man, I started to cry and bawl, and I blurted it all out to this stranger. Of all of this fear I had, this humiliation of having failed. I had failed English, and that's what held me back. And after I got all finished, this guy said to me, didn't they tell you anything about summer school? Didn't they tell you that there's an opportunity in the public school system that if you'll go to summer school and forfeit your vacation and uh, concentrate, you can probably get a passing grade in English and you'll go on to be promoted? I said, no, I didn't know nothing about that. I said, how could I possibly learn it in a matter of a few weeks when I failed it for a year? And he went on to tell me, he said, if you leave the baseball cards home, you probably do great, you know. And he was a hell of a nice guy, and he told me a few things, and I got interested in what he was saying. And I can remember saying to him, I said, I'm going to try that. And I said, do you really think a guy like me could, could pass? And he sort of smiled, and he said, yeah, I think you could. The man that I talked to that day is the superintendent of schools today in Mount Vernon, New York. His name is Hamilton B. Ryder. The day that I talked to him, he was the young student English teacher. Assigned to teach the summer school session. (laughs) 
So my life has been full of a lot of coincidences, gentlemen. And I certainly would not stand here and repeat them and bore you with them. But come on, how many of us, how many of us if we would want to search now? Would come to the full belief that this power does exist. My God, how many of you are servicemen or former servicemen? Don't tell me for one minute that if you were ever in any of the conflicts of our country, that you didn't call upon God. Because if you didn't ever call upon God, you wasn't there. And I'm going to tell you another thing, and I don't say I'm going to tell you because I'm smart. It's just how I feel. Please, by, by, just by raising your hand, how many of you men are fathers in here? Fine. Good. Now, I don't know most of you, but that's not because I want it that way. And I don't want you to think I'm being cocky by trying to get into your personal life. But damn it, I know when you prayed, and don't tell me I don't. Because if you're a father, I'll tell you a time when you prayed. Whether you were atheist, agnostic, believer, non-believer, or whatever the hell you were. I want you to recall, just for one minute, that day, that evening, that night, whenever the hell it was about to take place, the greatest miracle in your life, the birth of your first child. I'll tell you exactly what you were saying. When you were standing around out there in that receiving ward or whatever the hell you want to call it, walking up and down that corridor, banging that Coke machine, walking back and forth to the parking lot, I'll tell you what you were saying. You were saying, please, God, don't let anything happen to her. Please, God, make that kid all right. I don't care now, God, whether it's a boy or a girl, just make it good. Just make it mine. And we all talked about God. We all wanted God. And yet, the knowledge of the existence of this godless power is still so difficult. It was for me because, how can you reach out for something that was a statue? I still couldn't get that out of my head. The inanimate thing is a god. What do you mean, turn my life over to a statue? And that's how sick you can get. And I can remember a time, you know, and I ain't trying to be dramatic, but I said this to a chaplain. I spent the war years, I was a, also as Dave last night, I'm a member of the United States Marine Corps, and, and not to impress you, but the, I had to do some things, you know, that wasn't pleasant. And, and I can remember a time in the midst of a, a lot of confusion when people were going down left and right, you know, and a, a chaplain, a Navy chaplain is... Is up there trying to calm me and my guys down, you know, and, I, and I'm getting pissed off, you know. I don't want to hear that shit. Give me some old guns. I don't want to hear that crap. And this guy, any Marines here, I'll tell you when that was. That was the Battle of the Tenero River, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's a bad night, right? And this chaplain saying to me, pray to God, pray to God, and you'll be all right. And I said, yeah, but suppose he's praying to God, too, then they don't know how to... And I just didn't understand. I had to stand a summary court marshal for that crack. But then my sponsor told me, search for the image of a God as you understand him. And I searched and I thought. And then one night, you know, we were closing the meeting. And I guess I've closed a million meetings and been at a million meetings that were closed. And, but all of a sudden, something made sense. We didn't hold hands in those days. We were still macho then, you know. And I was standing there, and we opened up, and we said, Our Father, Our Father, Our Father. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my personal life. And I say this with no shame. I loved my father more than I have loved anything or any person in my entire life. My father was the greatest thing that ever walked on this earth as far as I'm concerned. He represented everything that I could ever hope or dream to be. Wasn't that way with the district attorney of the state of New York, because in his eyes, my father was a criminal, 
In the eyes of many, my father was uh, sort of a Robin Hood. My father stood six foot four and weighed about 240 pounds. And if there are any native New Yorkers here, my father is the guy that fought Johnny Broderick under the boardwalk at Rockaway, which is recalled in many legends in the city of New York as perhaps the toughest and greatest fist fight that was ever touched up by two men. Johnny Broderick was a cop in New York City, known, and they're making a movie about him, as the toughest cop that ever walked the face of this earth. After that fight, he and my father grew up to be very close friends. But my father went his way, and Johnny, of course, went his way, and my father had to pay a, a hell of a price for his choice. But Jesus, how I loved him, you know. People used to say that my father was tough, and he was hard, and an angry man. I never knew that. Anytime I ever saw my father, he was happy, and he was laughing, and he didn't laugh, he roared. You could hear him for blocks. And everybody knew him, and he knew everybody. And he wasn't angry, and he wasn't hard. He was so gentle. I can remember my brother Jack, who was raising pigeons on the roof of the tenement house that we lived in. And his best pigeon had gotten its wing caught in the chicken wire in the coop. And he had come down the stairs to, on a summer evening, and my father and I were sitting out on the stoop. And he had come with tears to my father about the pigeon. And my father, I could see it now, he put out his big hand. And he put the pigeon in his hand. And he got a match and a popsicle stick and rubber band or something. And he fixed the pigeon's wing. And I watched him and the little pigeon just went, and my brother stopped crying, and he, the father gave him back the pigeon. And my father used to take me with him every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning. I wish I could say it was to church, but it wasn't. He used to take me to the Elks Club. But you know, we used to walk to the Elks Club. And we had to walk right through Little Italy. And you know, there was a lot of them little Dago assholes just waiting to get a piece of my action. Oh, man, they just waiting to catch me alone. But nobody ever fooled with my father. He never wore a coat. He used to wear just a vest and a derby. And God, his arms were like that, you know. Black hair coming out of here. And I can remember holding his hand. <laughs> and I'd see all them little Italian kids looking out at them alleys, and I'd hold real tight, you know. Because I knew that nothing could happen to me as long as I held that hand. There was nobody going to screw with my old man. I knew that. And I used to ask my father everything. And he knew all the answers. He knew why grass was green. He knew why butterflies were different colors. He knew everything I ever asked him. I know now he was probably dishing me out a bunch of crap. But, but I didn't know that then. And that night, as we closed that meeting, I came to believe. I knew then how to talk to God. Never would I portray the image of my father as God. But in my mind, his image is my God. For when I talk to God as I do daily, I talk to him as I would talk to my father. There are so many things in my life that I could never be proud of. And my life is full of a lot of shame. But the proudest thing that I can say in my life is that I'd never lied to my father. So I could never lie to my God. And when I talk to God, I feel the strength in God as I felt in my father's hands. 
And I know that if I now hold on to God as I held on to my father, that everything is going to be all right. That wasn't easy for me to do at first because I was so full of shame. So full of shame of what I've done. The obscenities in my drinking career. Horrible, horrible. So horrible that I was full of a fear of exposing myself to God. Until I heard something that I have repeated over and over again for many years. But the hearing of that opened up this whole concept of God as I understand Him. It was an antidote that told about a sharecropper's family living in the state of Georgia. Now, if any of you have ever been in Georgia, you'll know that it's a hell of a job to make a living out of the land in Georgia. But this little family did. Not much. Just enough to get them by. None of the great luxuries that you and I evidently take for granted today. Enough to buy the seed for the coming year and to feed them through the winter. And that's how life was for that family. Until, lo and behold, one year, after everything was bought and paid for and the seed was in, the family discovered they had five dollars left over. And they were joyous about that. It was the first experience of, of any kind of financial reward. But yet they were Intelligent enough to realize that five dollars certainly wasn't enough to buy each member of that family any kind of a gift. So they wisely decided to buy one gift that the entire family could share and enjoy in. And the decision was made to buy a mirror. This family had never owned a mirror. No one in that family had ever seen his or her own true self. They all knew the beauty in each other. But none had been exposed to his own image. So it was an exciting day, the day that the mirror arrived. And they gathered the family around the kitchen table, and they offered the mirror to the father, who was the head of the family. A mature elderly man who who did exactly what mature elderly men would do. He looked into the mirror for the first time and saw himself. Now, he knew the beauty in his wife and in his teenage daughter and his little son. So he looked upon himself and he just sort of smiled a little, gave his nose a couple of whacks, pulled on the strap on his overall and sort of smiled and he turned and he handed the mirror to his wife, who knew the beauty of her husband and of her children. And she, too, did what mature elderly women would do. She blushed, fixed her hair a little bit, pulled with the collar on her house coat and juggled the specks a little. Then she turned and she handed the mirror to her teenage daughter, who was a beautiful girl, and who knew the beauty of her parents and of her brother. And she did exactly what beautiful teenage girls would do. She giggled and she laughed and she blushed and giggled some more and fooled with a ribbon and the curls and giggled, you know. Then she turned and she handed the mirror to her little seven-year-old brother who knew all of this beauty in his family. Now, her little brother, when he had been about one year old, had been standing alongside of his daddy while his daddy was milking a cow. And the cow had kicked out and struck this little boy right in the face. And what was supposed to have been a face on this little child was nothing but a twisted, ugly, grotesque mess of flesh. It was horrible. And when this small child, who knew all of that other beauty, looked into that mirror and saw his face, he didn't know whether to cry or to scream or to holler. And he stood there, as it says in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, bewildered, frustrated, full of remorse and fear. And he turned to his mother. And he said, Mama, have I always been this ugly? 
And she said, no, you haven't always been that ugly. And he said, but mama, how can you love me when I'm so ugly? And she said, because you're mine. And that's the relationship that I have now with the God of my understanding. For besides myself, God is the only other person who has known me in my total and complete ugliness. When my family and my children, with just cause, had to turn from me because of my ugliness. When my friends also, with just cause, had to turn away because of my ugliness. I stood faced with that decision. God could and would if he was sorry. I was instructed in our steps how to seek this God. And I sought this God. I don't know when God came. I'm quite sure he didn't. But there was a time, a moment, or a day, or an evening, or whatever. But at his time, not my time, he selected one of you to act as his instrument. And he brought me to you, and you to me. And as you came to me, you brought with you what God had sent, the gift of sobriety. And you extended this gift to me. And because I wanted this gift, I reached out and took it. And as I took it, the man who gave it to me said these words. Thus, take this gift and protect it with your life, because this gift is your life. Hold it close to you. Take from it its love, its compassion, its strength. And if you'll do those simple things and adhere to those conditions, much sooner than you deserve, you'll be able to stand up again and walk amongst your fellows. And on that day that you can walk again with some semblance of dignity, I ask you only to bring that gift back. Thank you very much, Pastor.